For the next four Sundays, this season of Epiphany, Amy and I will both speak during this sermon time. I will offer an introduction to the idea of the day, and then Amy will preach a homily based on the text, and those texts will all be taken from the Psalms. We're using the lectionary psalm for each Sunday of Epiphany. Before I offer this morning's introduction, let me give these words as an introduction to this whole series, which we are calling, Because Church Ought to Be Big Enough for the Devoted and the Doubters. How did religion begin? Was it a religious thing? I mean, did God just appear one day to human beings? Did the Ten Commandments literally just kind of fall out of the sky? A divine being named God and a human being named Moses meeting on a mountain? Is that how it happened? Was all of it just supernatural? Is, or is our Bible trying to tell us something even more interesting? Something super, but something natural. What if the stories of Scripture, our faith narrative as as a whole, what if that is the result of revelation, yes, but a revelation that dawns slowly over eons of time? What if that revelation occurred as part of the evolution of human beings from our primate origins to the homo sapien we are today, homo sapien, the thinking being. Could our beautiful creation narrative in Genesis and that story that has been called the fall, could that story, Adam and Eve and that sly serpent, could that be a way of telling the story of our evolution? That fall from grace includes those interesting words that if Adam and Eve ate from the tree of life, their eyes would be open. And like God, they would know good from evil. Before this moment, there was complete innocence. They only knew good. My dog doesn't know good and evil. She is a grand, wonderful, loving creature, but she just lives by her instincts. But somewhere along the way, we, the thinking being, realized something else is going on here. Our eyes were opened. There is good and there is evil. There is a future, and that future includes death. Maybe religion didn't just fall out of the sky, a supernatural gift of a supernatural giver. Maybe God is even bigger than that even more grand than some supernatural being, a cosmic judge, a divine sheriff in the sky, maybe God really is, as Jesus said, spirit. Not a spirit, Jesus said, just spirit, bigger than a being of divine proportion. And maybe we need to learn to read our scriptures that way. Maybe in every one there is a hint about the origins, what religion is all about, and why it came to be in the first place, which is to say there is a human 
predicament that we all live with. We find ourselves in this world as thinking beings, conscious, able to think about ourselves, thinking about ourselves. Now think about that just a moment. We can think about ourselves, thinking about ourselves in relation to the world and in relation to an otherness that humans have felt since the dawning of human consciousness. Maybe if we were more real and less, well, religious, maybe if it seemed more natural and less supernatural, maybe if it seemed to speak of the inescapable universal human experience, who am I in this huge world? What really matters? How do I find meaning? Maybe if we could let the scripture ask the questions we believe it has always been asking, rather than being something supernatural, a miraculous relic many Christians seem to think of as endowed with a kind of magical power, giving the exact details of our planet's origins and the play-by-play of the world's end. Maybe if we could hear the story the scripture as a human narrative, not just a religious one. And maybe if we could let God be the great mystery, the spirit of life, not just the man upstairs controlling everything, maybe we could all be open to that great mystery in a way that does give life meaning. Now that's how we're going to invite you to hear the Psalms as we read them over this season of Epiphany, which means a revealing. Maybe we will all be open to a new understanding, a new hearing, a new way of thinking, a new way of experiencing in this season that moves from the shortest, the darkest day of the year into the light of spring, the hope of rebirth and renewal in Easter. Now, of course, we are preaching to the choir, to the insiders, but we have some skeptics among us, and we welcome you all. Bring your questions. Bring your doubts, your skepticisms. Bring your experience of life as you have known it. Welcome. The story of Scripture is our human story And it is big enough to meet us all where we are, the devoted and the doubters alike. Welcome. Now for today, the human experience of thinking about myself. Who am I in this big world? In his little book of poems that I have just been introduced to called Readings from the Book of Exile, An Irish poet named Patrick Otuama says, And even though you do not know your name, by which I mean, I think he means, you or we do not really know who we are, your inhabitation space was named, that is, the place where we can most be ourselves, by face-to-facing something that you met and listened to. All of that again. 
And even though you do not know your name, your inhabitation space was named by face-to-facing something that you met and listened to. How well have you met and listened to yourself? How well do you know yourself, really know yourself? Have you been willing to look deep within To move around the furniture and see what might have been swept under the carpet. When was the last time you walked through the house of who you are? Opened some of the doors to look for any skeletons that might be hiding in your closets. Do you really know yourself? Or do you really want to know? Or are you afraid of what might crawl up from the muck and mire if you turn over some of those rocks and explore? A psychotherapist named Megan Hale says in an article entitled Five Common Fears That Keep People Out of Therapy, she says, trust me, as therapists, we get it. It can be really uncomfortable opening up to a complete stranger. It's kind of an unnatural process to go into a room with someone you've never met and share some very personal content. But here's the thing. That therapeutic relationship is beneficial specifically for that reason. The relationship you form with a therapist is a blank slate. We serve, we serve as an outside perspective. We are not emotionally involved with you and for the most part are not personally affected by the decisions you make. A lot of people are afraid to go to a therapist because they don't really want to know themselves. So many great books are about this deeply personal search. Movies and songs, art and poetry explore the inner terrain of the human quest to know and to be known. This may be true because if you cannot know yourself, know what really makes you tick, what you really want and what you really need, what really fills you with joy and shakes you with fear. If you don't really know yourself, how can you know anyone else? The quest for relationship, more than a physical hunger, is a deep longing to know and to be known by someone else, intimately known. In order to be loved, you first have to love yourself. You first have to search your own soul. And even though you do not know your name, your inhabitation space was named by face-to-facing something that you met and listened to. The psalmist said, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. More than anything just religious, pious, or self-righteous, Maybe the psalmist was just identifying the universal experience of hunger to know and to be known. Dan and I did not collaborate. The very first words on my page say, Marcus Borg says, How we think about God matters. Wow, that was crazy. 
That's how he started his confession, and I even had to search a minute to find the whole article that Marcus Borg had written. He goes on to say, how we think about God matters. It affects the credibility of religion in general and of Christianity in particular. Our concept of God can make God seem real or unreal. Our concept of God can make God seem remote or near. So how we think about God, how we talk about God really does matter. Here's how the psalmist talked about God in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light for you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld an unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end. I'm still with you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. A couple of weeks ago, I preached from the Gospel of John, and I was struck by the phrase, grace upon grace. But I needed some concrete examples of what that looked like. Once I got started with my list of graces upon graces, it was like I couldn't stop. One idea led to another idea. So when I sat down to read Psalm 139 for this week's sermon, I was transported back to one of my most important graces. Here's the way I put it. Grace upon grace is when people really get you understand you, and trust you enough to let you really be yourself when yourself is not all shiny and new, but sometimes yourself is tattered and broken and sad and scared. When people really get you, 
That is grace. I guess if I had been the psalmist, this may have been my version, a little less poetic and beautiful maybe, but my version of describing this human condition of desiring to be known. That's what the psalmist is expressing, a desire to be known. Perhaps that's what psalmists do. They don't give words to what is. They give words to what we hope for, what we desire, and what we need. We need for someone to understand us. Haven't you been struck lately thinking about listening to people talk and thinking, I don't understand them at all. I don't understand where they're coming from. I feel like I don't even know who they are. Please tell me I'm not alone in having that feeling. Okay, the sound guys are saying I'm not alone in having that feeling. What we need is for someone to understand us, even sometimes when we don't understand ourselves. We need a recipient of our vulnerability. We need an other to receive all that we are, the good in us, the questions in us, the pain in us, the distrust in us, the joy in us, the hope in us, the fear in us, the anxiety in us, the happiness in us, the despair in us, the complexity in us, the doubt in us. We need an other to fully know us. Or are we afraid of that? What are our honest motivations? What are our deepest fears? What are our best hopes? Do our words and our posts represent our very best self and our very honest self? And are those necessarily always the same thing? It seems to me that people go to great lengths to not let people in. Is it the fear of judgment? Is it the fear of rejection? Is it the fear, period? It takes a certain level of trust and a healthy dose of vulnerability to be fully known. The psalmist, psalmist starts this with, you have searched me and known me. The psalmist is making a declaration of what has already occurred. You have searched me and known me. And now just let me list all the ways, O oh God, that you keep up with me. But did you catch that at the end, the psalmist always wants more? Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Test me, test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in a way everlasting. As if what has already been said was not enough, the desire remains that the process of being fully known never ends. This desire to be fully known and understood and accepted and loved is part of the human condition. For those that choose to wrap this human condition in a cloak of faith and religion and spirituality, we hope and trust and believe that God is the one who fully knows us and understands us and accepts us and loves us. 
But I think we usually have this side conversation going on in our thinking that holds some kind of disclaimer that reads, you have searched me and known me, and as unbelievable as it is, you love me anyway. Except that's not what the psalmist said. There's some kind of tape that we play that's not in the psalmist's playlist that includes this idea that in spite of being fully known, it is only God that can love us anyway. Perhaps it's precisely because of being fully known that we can be so well received. I'm reminded of one of the greatest and most well-known scenes in all of movie history, A Few Good Men. Tom Cruise is the defense attorney. Jack Nicholson is on the stand, and the dialogue goes, Tom Cruise says, did you order the code red? And the judge intervenes. You don't have to answer that question. And Jack Nicholson says, I'll answer that question. You want answers? Cruise says, I think I'm entitled to them. Nicholson said, you want answers? Cruise said, I want the truth. And Nicholson says, you can't handle the truth. Now, you're all going to go Netflix that today and watch that movie because it's so awesome. But I think what, what Nicholson expresses is what we all really believe, that most people can't handle the truth of who we are. As I understand God, God already knows all the truth of me. And God doesn't love me in spite of it. And God doesn't love me because of it. God simply just knows me and loves me. I'll tell you one thing I learned in the last two months of my life, and that is that most people can't handle the truth of all that you think and feel. They want everything to be okay even when everything is not okay. And that's how we learn to put on a brave face and force ourselves to be super positive to make everyone else less afraid. We need to learn how to handle the truth. I'm sorry that word has been robbed from us. There is still truth in this world. So in my story, I started walking and listening. I listened to podcasts and I listened to music. And most of my walks found their way to the beautiful labyrinth at Sardis Baptist Church, which is about a half a mile from our house. In the center of that labyrinth is a stone seat. I walked the labyrinth in to the seat, and I walked that in silence. And then I would sit cross-legged on the stone stool at the center. And I would play Carrie Newcomer's song where she sings the chorus over and over. You can do this hard thing. You can do this hard thing. It's not easy, I know, but I believe that it's so. You can do this hard thing. And tears would just flow. Tears of uncertainty and fear. Tears of frustration and anger. Tears of doubt and isolation. Tears of sadness and disappointment. And when I was done with the crying for that day, I would play a deer's cry and hear these words as if from my very core, Christ with me, 
Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me. I would start walking my way out of the labyrinth. Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in me, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me. And I had timed it so that I was just stepping out of the labyrinth. And I was so glad nobody was there because at this point with earbuds in, I am just singing at full volume, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me, Christ with me. And with that, I would walk home having been fully seen, fully searched, fully known by God, even in those moments when I felt that no one else could fully handle the truth of me. How can you measure the impact of that kind of gift? It is the human condition to be made, to be known, the need to be known. And the psalmist gave words to what it means to be searched and known by God. It is human nature to want and need to be known and understood and accepted and loved. Dear friends, you are. You are known, understood, accepted, and loved by God. And so is everyone else. May it be so. Amen.